You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. This is actually part two of my interview with Rukmini Kalamaki. So if you haven't heard part one, I encourage you to rewind your podcast app one episode, listen to that one, and then come on over to part two. Uh, For those who maybe have forgotten in the day or two since you listened to the first one, uh, Rukmini is New York Times's ISIS correspondent. Uh, she's written all kinds of incredible stuff this year. And in the second part, we get into how she got her start in journalism and the path that took her to where she is now. I want to thank our longtime sponsor, Tiny Letter, who makes this all possible. Here's me and Rukmini Kalamaki. So you said that you went to boarding school in Switzerland. Not boarding school. You went to high school in Switzerland. Uh, I just lived there for lived five there, years. Five years. Yeah. And I know that you are originally Romanian. I am. So yes. how did you? What trajectory did you follow here? I was born in Romania. Um, my my stepdad was um, a political dissident who went under house arrest when I was when I was a small kid, uh, and he ended up spending ten years under house arrest. My mom, who was in the process of, she had just left my dad, she was still finalizing the divorce with my dad, but she was now essentially with my stepdad, realized that with him under house arrest um, and with him kind of leading this life that that we as the the family would be targeted. And she managed to get us out. It was It's a very, very long story involving a lot of subterfuge, but it was me, my grandmother, and my mom that initially left in uh, 1979, I believe. What kind of subterfuge are we talking about? At this point in time, when you were in a communist country, you had to have an exit visa or some sort of exit permit, you know, to be able to leave the country. You couldn't just leave. And it became increasingly rigid, you know, in who in, in who could leave. So the ways that people tried to leave is they would they would sign up for, you know, an academic conference or they'd be they'd be sports, you know, sports enthusiasts, you know, an right. athlete who would who would go for a gymnastics meet and not come back. And uh, as situ- the situation in Romania became more and more grim, I think they became more and more suspicious of people who were leaving for any reason. But I think in '79, when my mom, when my mom hatched away, you know, to do this, they were they were, I think, less suspicious of women. So basically, it was just me, her, and my grandmother. And she um, she used a letter that she'd gotten from my godfather. My godfather lived in Paris, uh, and he was very ill with cancer. He'd actually passed away. 
And my mother had a letter from him and his doctor saying, um, you know, he's this is it, you know, it's terminal cancer, he's going to die soon. If you want to see him, this is the moment, you know, to come. And she took this and she used this as a way to get herself a visa and, and me a visa. And initially my grandmother was not included. And my grandmother got her permission to leave literally the night before. And that was it. I mean, I, I did not come, we did not come back to Romania until... 1995. So what what did at what point did you start becoming interested in writing? So we're we're in Switzerland for 5 years. Um it was a really dark time, you know, in my I went from a place where we were where I felt very loved and where the society around us was I felt at home in. Switzerland is a very very hard place to be an immigrant. I don't want to call it racist, but I mean, that's that's <laughs> kind of what it is. You know, it's yeah. like you, I, I learned to speak French apparently fluently very quickly. And the reason I did that is because I, I understood as a child that if I if I speak with a Romanian accent, the negativity will, will surround me. Right. And, um, and so I had to learn to speak like a Swiss child to be able to have a chance of being integrated in, in that in that place. And um, I, I just understood like in some visceral way that my parents were embarrassed of being Romanian. You know, yeah. most Romanians who were moving to, to Switzerland at, at this point in time were uneducated um, people, working class people. They were they were coming to be nannies and um, security guards and whatever. My parents were doctors. What was your impression of what being Romanian meant at that point? At that point, it was something it was something shameful. It yeah. was it was um, a very poor country, a backwards, you know, country. It had this uh, patina of something dishonest, you know, people from Romania are, you know, are thieves or are, etc. So it was it was something literally that I was trying to hide. And um, I remember we we moved to California when I was 10, I think 10, 9, 10. And um, I, I immediately started to go to this very progressive school that my that my mom sent me to. And literally on my first day of school, uh, I was put into um, the classroom of a, of a teacher who spoke French because they, they wanted, even though the children were older than me, they wanted me to be with somebody who could, who could speak French. And that day, they put out a piece of paper on, a, on every child's desk and they said, um, we're going to write stories. We're going to write a story today. And I saw the other kids pick up their, you know, their pencil and start writing. And I, and I said to her and friends, I, I, I said, we're, we're doing what? She said, you're, you're going to write a story. And I said, what do you mean? I'd like, write a story. And she said, like, write a story, like, what, and, uh, whatever you want. And I remember asking her, like, a story, like, with a castle, you know, with a princess in a castle. She said, if you want a princess in a castle, you can put a princess in a castle. <laughs> and I was so dumbfounded because... The education system in, in Romania and Switzerland up until, you know, up the one I had experienced up yeah. until that point was a system of education based entirely on rote. You know, everything was memorization, multiplication tables, you know, you going and memorizing the multiplication tables, spellings, etc. There was there was there was no art class. There was no um, and certainly no creative writing class. And I remember I, I remember just like my head exploding at the thought that I had the agency and the ability to write a story. And I remember coming home that day from school and just telling my mom, I was like, you won't believe what happened today. <laughs> we wrote a story, you know? And um, anyway, and that was sort of the start of it. Of course, that was fiction. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple years later, I think I was 11 or 12, um, I had an amazing homeroom teacher and she, uh, she assigned all of the kids. She said, this year, we're all going to write a novel. It's going to take all year. First of all, we're going to do an outline. You're going to come up with a cast of characters. You're going to come. I mean, she like literally took it as this like year long, you know, project. And I wrote this book that um, that my parents, because they were, you know, I was an only child and they were sort of sappy, you know, 
in their in their pride of me, um, they ended up getting it bound. <laughs> you know? And I called it the Tesseract Kingdom. It was based on um, all of the Madeleine uh, Lingle books that I that I'd read, you know, at that point in time. And it was a story of I think four orphans, and. To me, it was like these these orphans who go into this other dimension to try to find their parents, um, and I, I don't even realize I I don't think I realized what I was doing, but I was I was searching for the sense of home, you know. Did you feel like when you were a teenager in California? Did you say like I'm like a Romanian exile, or you're like I was a teenager? What was so interesting in California is people asked me, you know, right away they realized I wasn't from there because I didn't speak English and I also have a strange name, and so people would, I mean, the routine question in America is where where you you know where do you come from? What yeah. you know what's your what's your background? And I was hesitant to tell people because of my experience in Switzerland. And very early on, I realized that in California, my friends would go, oh, my God, that's so cool. Yeah. Oh, you're from Romania. That's cool. Dracula's from there, right? Dracula's from there. You know, that was the one, the one <laughs> thing. And, um, and I remember just being, like, so touched by that. It was no longer this dirty, embarrassing thing, you know, that I was trying to hide. It was suddenly something interesting that made me unique. Um, and not to sound, you know, too patriotic here, but... That's the amazing thing about America is that you, I feel American. And my parents, uh, my mother, my grandmother, you know, I think they feel American. Uh, th- whereas I think in Switzerland, we would never, ever have been able to consider ourselves truly, you know, a member of Swiss society. So did you um, did you t- go into like a journalism program or like no, how did you get your no. start? I mean, I, um, so basically I was writing kind of throughout high school and then I gravitated towards poetry, which just, I mean, just by na- by the nature, I think, of what I was studying, you know, in school. Um, and in college, I went to Dartmouth. Uh, I then did um, a study abroad thing in, uh, in, in Italy where that w- it was run by Ezra Pound's daughter. <laughs> I'm sure this program doesn't exist anymore. It was the most amazing thing. Uh, Ezra Pound's daughter, Maria de Rachwitz, I think is her name, she had married an Italian count, and they literally lived in a castle in in uh, in the Alto Adige uh, part of Italy, and in an in an effort to rehabilitate her father's memory, um, Ezra Pound was an amazing poet, but he was also an anti-Semite, and he had he had made these these proclamations, you know, in on radio, etc., right. that I think have dogged him ever since, you know, and others that perhaps were not, I mean, I, I truly believe that Pound was a greater master than T.S. Eliot. And T.S. Eliot, I believe, according to people that knew him, was just as much as, uh, you know, an anti-Semite as Pound. But somehow that that shadow, you know, has, has covered his right. work. So she was running this program where, stu- you know, uh, college students would come for, it was like, I think, a month or two. Uh, and we had a professor who went through the cantos, which was Ezra Pound's great, great work, and his other poems day by day. And then we would have these occasional sessions with Maria, who was this larger-than-life character, and would do these dramatic readings of her father's of her father's work. And to me, it was just—I mean—I felt like my my head was on fire. I had a ten-year lapse on English compared to my peers. I'm now 18 or 19, and I've been speaking English for nine years. Right, so it was still a new language for me. You know, it was still. I was still kind of at, at a certain point. I'm, I'm I'm always sort of translating into into French, into Romanian, etc. Yeah. And uh, it was it was the moment where I felt like I just got language, you know. And Pound had these um, very interesting essays where he was trying to coach younger uh, writers, essentially, on how how to write poetry. Um, I haven't actually reread these 
in forever. I don't know if they would have at all the same resonance for me now as they as they had then. But he talks about the centrality of the image and how to distill language to get to the image. And I can't really talk about this much in journalistic circles because if you if you talk about using the lessons of poetry, you know, in journalism, <laughs> I think people people like people, people like get a little double, freaked out, you know. Fact check your <laughs> no, completely, <laughs> completely. But to me, it's the same thing. To me, a poem and a story does the same thing. You are using images. I started the let's say the ISIS story uh, with the image of these hostages being taken out of their cell one by one and being asked the proof of life questions. And James Foley finally realizing that these, these questions were so specific that only his parents and his and his family could have possibly uh, thought them up, which meant that finally after almost two years, you know, in captivity, sorry, more than a year in captivity, that finally his 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 family would know that he was alive. That's the way I try to think of stories. And it started really there. And you continue to be a, a poet. I mean, the last poems I published were in grad school, which was more than 10 years ago. And you were in grad school for? At Oxford. So I went to Dartmouth. I did English yeah. uh, literature. And then I went to Oxford and I did linguistics. And then I um, enrolled in a in a, <laughs> in a a bachelor's in Sanskrit. I was clearly lost. You know, oh. I was at, at a point in time when I had become sort of a career student. And my good luck, if if, if I can say it, say it this way, is I ended up failing <laughs> <laughs> Sanskrit exams. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just couldn't do it. I mean, yeah. like I, you know, so I failed it. Oxford gave me, I had already gotten my master's at Oxford at this point in time. So I yeah. was now enrolled in this four-year sort of open-ended thing where I had become a bachelor student again um, because I thought I was really interested in Sanskrit. What I was actually interested in was India. And this just happened to be the thing that I reached for. Um, and uh, anyway, so I failed the exam again. Uh, and then they basically sat me down and were like, that's it. You know, like, I mean, you failed this twice. That's it. Um, and so I had to I had to just sort of on the fly, you know, figure out what, what am I going to do with myself? Um, and I ended up taking a flight to India where I'd been studying with these Sanskrit pundits, as they called them. So I went back to them and I started <laughs> you know, doing like my little my little lessons in, in Sanskrit. And, um, and I just kind of realized, I'm like, what I actually like to do is to travel and to write. I mean, it took me much longer, I think, than most like sentient human beings to figure out that the two things that put those two things together was journalism. And I, the good luck I had was that I was in Delhi in January of 2001, which was uh, which was the, the date of this horrific uh, earthquake uh, in Gujarat. It's since been superseded by the Pakistani earthquake. Right. But at that point in time, the immediate, I can't even remember the death toll, but the immediate death toll that was announced just days later was 20,000 dead. And um, I was in this neighborhood in Delhi that ha- that was run down and poor because I was paying like $10 a night for my hotel room. And I remember waking up um, and both of the, t- I, I had twin beds in my in my room and the twin beds were doing, were, were knocking against each other and the water that was on my, on my um, bedside table uh, w- was trembling. And I remember calling downstairs and going, um, calling the reception and saying, sir, what's going on? What's going on? My, 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 my room is shaking. My bed is shaking. And they said, madam, it's not our fault. All of Delhi is shaking. <laughs> 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 and that's when I realized that there had been a major earthquake. And I just I just packed my a suitcase as quickly as I could. And I went straight to the airport. I somehow knew it wasn't in Delhi and it had to be somewhere else. Yeah. And I managed to get one of the last seats on the outgoing flight to Gujarat. 
And after that flight, the other flights were just uh, they, they were just full of people, relatives, you know, and and emergency workers, etc. Um, and so I got there in that first wave of of reporters on the plane was be, with me was CNN, um, you know, like all of the major players, except for NPR <laughs> <laughs> and Time Magazine. And this is at a point in time when Time Magazine was still this very dominant voice, and. Um, I think the earthquake happened on a Friday. And Time magazine used to shut its weekly edition on, I believe, on a Saturday. Did you like know anyone at Time magazine? I didn't know, or you I just didn't know simply anybody. Knew that you knew that no one was from Time magazine. I had made friends uh, with one of the CNN producers who was a really nice guy. He was on that flight. He was in first class, yeah. <laughs> whereas I, I was back, back in cattle. And he gave me the phone number of a couple of NPR people that I could call. I did my first interview with Robert Siegel. I, I, he later interviewed me about something ISIS-related. He, of course, doesn't remember that in 2001, <laughs> <laughs> he essentially put me on the air the first time. Anyway, and so I, I managed to contact these people at Time, and they said, if you can file, you know, by I think it, it was by tomorrow that they would take it. And that week, my story, my story was, as, as I've now understood with, with how freelancer copy is taken in, I was very upset by the fact that mine, mine was the second byline. It wasn't even the second byline. I was contributor, you know, mm. on the story and that it was written by somebody else. But my material was there, you know, like the quotes I'd done, the, the interviews I'd done with these with these survivors. I mean, how did you even know how to like put together a story? Like, I like didn't. how many I words didn't. it should be? I, I I had no idea, and and to be perfectly frank, I mean, I, I owe an apology to whoever the you know the nice time person was who took my copy because I initially tried to file them a story in the first person. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, I had no idea. You know, I was yeah. just like, I'm, I was like, let me write about myself. You know, yeah. walking through through these ruins, and um, she was like, you know, I need you to fast forward to where you have a human being, a person who's lost a house and give me that quote. Um, well, I mean, are you aware in your, when you're in a situation like that of how over your head you are? Or no, are you just I, was, like I was so naive. I wasn't just naive. I was extremely arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was I was so completely out of my depths. I had no idea what I was doing, but I just loved it. You know, I just I just thought this is this is so amazing. And the that week that I had in Gujarat, we we basically hired I, I at the airport. I found a bunch of other reporters, and as freelancers do, I kind of latched onto a group of two people, and we hired a car together, and we took off into this area, and we ended up in this in this town in Gujarat, and. The day when this earthquake had happened um, happens to be uh, like the like July Fourth for India. It was their Independence Day. So guess what happens on Independence Day? On Independence Day, the offices are closed, so office workers are at home. But in general, there's parades, and so all of all of the children in this town had gone to a parade, and they were in the middle of this of sort of the center of the old town, and the buildings had had collapsed around them. So this this was literally a town without children. I mean, like every I, I remember meeting this little kid and he, he couldn't find his parents anywhere. And I, you know, and I was doing an interview with him. And the reason he had not been at the parade was because he was a chess champion and he had been given a permission to to leave, to not go to the parade because he had to go to some sort of chess meet. And I ended up meeting a, a man, I remember who was heading off into this completely destroyed building. I mean, it, I remember walking out there and it just looked like a sea of cement, you know, like these these enormous buildings had just fallen um, on, on, this, on the square and buried, you know, this, this march of, of kids. And he was going there with a hammer. And he was trying to, I mean, you know, go through, I don't know how many metric tons of cement to try to see if he could find his kid. And it was, it was so, it was so unbelievably moving. And, um, Anyway, I just got I just got 
you know, hooked. I basically had the story to myself for I think two days, <laughs> you yeah. know, before be- two or three days before the others, you know, started like chartering flights and you know right. whatever. And that brings up an interesting question. Knowing about your reporting now, where like you cited in in your story, uh, the horror before the beheadings, this yeah. image of them being led in front, and, and you're that's also like these are like great images. Like right. you you know know them when you see them. Is that harder now? Like when you're not on the ground, is it harder to find those? poetic images that's that like thing, sell the story. Yeah, that's the thing that's really hard with the terrorism reporting is um and and makes it sometimes a little, you know, more boring is I can't go there. Right. You know, and so I'm dealing with now you're trying to get the image out of another human being. So so once you started doing you started freelancing, like how did, how did you figure out how to like make money doing it? So basically, I went kind of deeply into credit card debt in that year in India. And I was, um, you know, so I had my little clip from Time that I then like photocopied and tried to take everywhere. Um, I went back to Time and they basically told me that like, you know, thank you, but yeah. that's kind of it, you know. Um, and uh, I spent like another six or seven months, you know, kind of spinning my wheels in India, trying, at a certain point, I was even trying to, like, pitch stories to Indian newspapers, um, at which point they'd be like, well, I think the Indian reporter's going to know the story a little bit better than you. <laughs> um, and then I just, I, I was like, I wasn't getting anywhere. And a classmate of mine in college had dated a New York Times reporter who was still at the New York Times. So I called this person uh, just to say, you know, hey, can I get in touch with you? I, you know, I'd like to figure out how this works. Uh, and the story on the street had been that he'd gone straight from Dartmouth to the Times. What I didn't know is he'd gone to the Times as a clerk, which is like, right. the, you know, the lowest category, not even reporting. And then and then after many years had sort of worked his worked his way up. But from from the from the outside, it looked really easy. <laughs> you know, it, was like, it was like this guy just went straight from college to to the Times. And he really popped my bubble. And he was like, you know, this is this is really tough. I, I haven't seen anybody get hired here that has less than five years experience. And, you know, I've just spent the last five years chasing chasing fire engines and doing the most boring kind of metro work. And you wanted to, like, travel the world. Yeah. And, like, and I'm like, and I want to be a phone correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I said, well, so how do how do people start? You know, and he said, well, you've got to go to like to a small paper, you know, somewhere, somewhere else, um, you know, in America. And I started the process of applying to these papers immediately after 9-11. I, on 9-11, I was in India. I, I remember the day like like it was yesterday. I was inside of a coffee shop, and they turned on the TV set, and you, you could see the towers falling. And people around me, I don't know how they knew I was American, but people around me just started coming up to me and going, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Anyway, and so at that point in time, I went through the top 100 publications in America, top 100 newspapers. I, I got the addresses of all of them. I created a packet with my little Time magazine clip <laughs> and, like, the few other things that I had, which was, like, a very small uh, cadre of stuff. And um, I sent, you know, a package to every uh, to top 100 papers. And I got two <laughs> replies. One, this is, like, unsolicited, like, to their general mailbox. Like, yeah. Hey. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'd like to be an intern. I'd like yeah. to be anything. You know, like to, I'd like to I'd like to start. Yeah. And uh, I, I ran into a secondary problem, which is that most newspapers have some sort of feeder program from a grad school. Right. So or the just hire you know, their interns. Or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, like, you know, the Washington Post had this had this internship that I knew people had gone to from Dartmouth. But, you know, you have to start at Dartmouth. You know, you don't start when you're on the outside. And I was in this awful catch-22 where I had no clips. Right. Well, I had very few clips. Right. How am I going to get ID if I don't have ID? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And um, and so I was in this circular thing where I didn't have enough. They kept on telling me they didn't have enough clips, but I couldn't get clips until I worked for them. And you're living off of a credit card. this whole And time. I'm living off of, you know, contributions from my family and, and a credit card. 
Anyway, so I get a call back from two places. One was this uh, newspaper in Texas. I can't even remember what it was called. It was like not, not, not certainly not the Houston Chronicle or the Dallas Morning News. It was a very small community paper. I think I looked it up, and I think the circulation was like 20,000. And um, they said to me very, you know, they said, okay, you're among a pool of people that we're interviewing, but we're a little bit nervous about hiring you because we're not really sure that this is the destination where you want to end up. So I was sitting there like, you know, what do you say in that interview? Like, obviously, my... my I'm to work here for the rest of my life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, this is the, sure. This is not, you know, yeah. like my end game. Um, so anyway, so that went nowhere. <laughs> and then I got a call back from the Daily Herald, uh, which is a paper on the outskirts of Chicago in Streamwood, Illinois. And they said, we have a three-month internship. It paid so little that when I went to do a story about um, about uh, uh, food stamps, I suddenly realized that I qualified. <laughs> <laughs> and they hired me as their intern. I will be forever grateful to, to the Herald. Um, I had a wonderful, wonderful ed- editor, Renee Trappi, who's still, who's still a, a, I consider a friend of mine. I busted my ass for the first What kind of stuff months. were you writing for them? I had a beat, and yeah. my beat was the town of Streamwood, Illinois. Yeah. Um, uh, the paper was based in, sorry, I think I said Streamwood. It's based in Arlington Heights, Illinois. So so northern Chicago, the, the northern suburbs of Chicago, they call them villages. Um, and it's these small communities that are 20,000, 30,000 people. And the Daily Herald was, at, at, at this point in time when the entire newspaper industry was imploding, they were actually growing by, um, by doing this thing called zoning. Have you heard about this? Where they had, uh, instead of having one newspaper... Is you'd, you'd have a front page that changed. So you'd oh, have be like one. a localized. Like, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. And so I, I can't remember how many papers they put out, but it was like seven or eight. Yeah. Um, and people living in the Streamwood section was, would essentially be able to pick up this paper and have, it was always an AP story. Yeah. That was like, you know, air, you know, airstrikes have began in Iraq, you know, ground invasion to follow. Um, an AP story that was national or Reuters, you know, and then two local stories. So they hired me specifically to do only local news. <laughs> One of my very first assignments was they sent me um, to <laughs> to the municipal board of Streamwood, Illinois. They called it the village board. And they said to me, you know, this this was like an important thing. This is like one of like this 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 board met uh, twice a month. Yeah. And I would have to do like stories, you know, about decisions they'd made. This is exactly why people were buying the Herald. So I went to the meeting and there was an agenda. And I'll never forget, the agenda was, <laughs> number one, <laughs> a firefighter was getting some sort of recognition award. And he hadn't even, like, saved anybody. It was like he had, like... It was just for, like, doing a good job. It was, like, yeah, it was, like, something, like, really, like, borderline, <laughs> you know, where, where I'm, like, you walk past the house that was on fire and you happen to be a firefighter and you ran in, you know, like, and you put out the fire. So there was that. And then the main agenda item was it. So I started at the Herald in I think in October, October of um, two thousand one. So it was the start of the winter season, and they had a big bid out to buy salt for the city of Streamwood, Illinois. So I, you know, I'm like I looked at it, I listened to the whole meeting, and I'm like, there's no news, none, you know. Yeah. So I, I, you know, drove back to the newsroom. I got there, at, at, I think, at 9 or 10 p.m. And uh, my editor called me and said, okay, so what are you going to write? And I'm like, well, I, I don't think there was any news. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, <laughs> well let me show you. She said, let me see the agenda. So I showed her the agenda. And she agreed with me that the firefighter was not, you know, news. But she was like, this salt thing, you know, like, no, I, I think you should cover this. And I hadn't actually taken any notes, you know, on it because it was so boring. And I thought to myself, who the hell cares about, you know, about them buying salt? 
And I was really schooled the next day because I came into the office and I saw that um, my colleague, Kim, Kim Brielle, who is actually now at the Washington Post, <laughs> um, I, I was walking into the newsroom and I was walking towards my editor's desk and I suddenly saw when I walked past Kim Brielle's desk that she had the Streamwood, Illinois agenda next to her phone and she was on the phone and I could hear salt, you know, as the word that she was speaking. So I was like, oh my God, they've assigned, they've assigned the salt thing. Like, I, I <laughs> screwed this it. up. I lost the salt story. <laughs> and sure enough, they did this, like, 10-inch long story about, you know, Streamwood is considering, you know, buying this much, you know, salt, and it's cheaper than last year. And I thought my life was over. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, I, I mean, how, how am I going to get – how am I going to get back to India, you know, from from, <laughs> from here? Um, my next assignment was – it was the start of the Christmas season. So they literally sent me – they had – every single one of these little towns had a, had a municipal Christmas tree. <laughs> so – I went to cover the municipal Christmas tree ceremony in Streamwood, Illinois, which consists of the mayor coming out and turning on a light, you know, and people singing jingle bells. Yeah. Okay. So I did the story. I've never had so many people tell me that they don't want to be quoted. <laughs> it was like, like, do you have a quote about like the nice Christmas tree? Ah, uh, no, you know, people know me in the community. I'd prefer. I'm like, I, what? You know, we're talking about a Christmas tree. You don't want to be quote. You, you want this to be anonymous? You know, like, it was the weirdest thing. So um, I did that first story. I think they liked it. They then sent me to Bartlett, Illinois, and and they said to do another Christmas tree lighting ceremony. And then they sent me to Hanover Park, Illinois, and I'm like. I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna get out of here. You know, like I'm doing Christmas tree lighting ceremonies. I, I'm. I'm curious about like I've in my own life like consistently not done hard things that humbled me because I'm like kind of a like both egotistical and lazy person. So like when you're like twenty <laughs> something years old and working at this paper, you're like literally at the bottom of the yeah. journalism food chain. Completely. We sort of figure it out. Okay, here's a hundred of the top news sources. Zero are interested <laughs> in me. Like, how are you feeling about yourself during that period? And, and you know what? I wasn't even in my early 20s. I mean, I'd gone to I'd gone to grad school for three years. I'd yeah. like spent a year. Yeah, you're not so like a like, kid. So I'm like in my late 20s now. Yeah. And... I mean, I was starting to feel like a little desperate, you know, yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, is this going to is this going to happen for me? And the, the thing is, I entered journalism exactly at the moment when the bottom dropped out. You know, 9-11 was like the start of the, the complete spiral right. um, where advertising was going away, etc. And so every single step I made. Um, you know, going from an intern where they they told me up front, there's no jobs here, you know, and then somehow I worked so hard on these Christmas tree lighting ceremony stories that they agreed to hire me, you know, right. for uh, my first salary was $22,000 a year. I then went to the AP, you know, like I was like, I, I needed to get, I needed to get enough clips so that yeah. somebody would take me seriously. And then I needed to get to an organization that had a foreign desk. So AP um, took you on the basis of your work in Illinois. Uh, yes, and they but they took me on essentially what became the almost a night shift um, in Oregon, where I was again, you know, like you you whenever you come to a new organization, you always start at the bottom again. You know, right. it doesn't matter what it doesn't matter what you did in Streamwood, Illinois. Nobody remembers it. You you've got an entire newsroom of people, some of whom are very good and who all have beats. Yeah, you realize very quickly. Oh, oh my God, I just got hired to essentially fill the night slot. You know, right. on, <laughs> on on among my duties was putting out the lottery numbers. Um, so again, when I joined. When when I joined the AP, I remember thinking my life is over. You know, like I'm never, how am I going to go from this working the four to midnight shift? And the union, I remember, got really angry at me because basically if you come in at 4 p.m., you've got things you have to do for the first couple hours. So by the time I can work on my own stories, it's like six. 
right? Seven. Yeah. And then you're so, like, nobody's in the office anymore, right? So you can't, you can't, you know, unless you have their home number, you can't get a source. Um, so I try to do stories like on my downtime, uh, on my weekend, etc. And the union got angry at me. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I, I thought you guys were here to protect me, you know? <laughs> anyway, so again, I started I, and I was there for two years before Hurricane Katrina. You yeah. know, happened, and that was sort of my my breakout moment where I was sent there, um, and I was able to to cover that. And finally, I was by able the AP, by the AP, and certainly not in the first wave of reporters. You know, they sent the stars. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, where <laughs> where were you on the power chart of AP I was, reporters in I New mean, Orleans? My good luck. I remember when the alert moved on the wire. Uh, it was. I remember I was at my desk in Oregon, and I was on the night shift, and I was alone. Yeah. I can't remember what day, but it moved. You know, the 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 top level alert. You know, yeah. there, there's different gradations of alerts, and this was the top level of alert. Moved across my screen. Ray Nagan, mayor of New Orleans, uh, orders the mandatory evacuation of the city. And I, even now, I get chills. You know, thinking about it. I mean, the mandatory ev- the mandatory evacuation of a major American city. You know, like when 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 in our lives do you ever see that? You know, and I just I just wanted to be there. I wanted to be there so badly, you know. So they sent like the first wave of, you know, of the top, the top, the famous um, AP reporters. And I watched them like it was Ellen Breed and Paulina Ariega and these bylines that I that I still adore, you know, reading. And I remember reading their stories and just like licking up every single word. I mean, yeah. the, the story was so rich. So, so, rich. so even though you were like on the lottery beat, you were sort of aware yeah. of what people who were doing the job oh, you wanted completely. were doing. Oh, completely, completely. And it, to be fair, it wasn't just a lottery beat, but that was sort of like the low point where right. that was like an important thing that I yeah. had to put out. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and if I worked like the early morning shift, I had to put out the fish numbers, right. um, which is something that one only does in Oregon. I don't even know what that means. But something <laughs> to do with the number of fish that are, fish passing, that are passing, no, that are passing through the salmon, uh, you know, okay. it was this, 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 they called it a macro. Um, and it was like this thing that you had to put out. And I just remember like, it was, it, it only took like 10 minutes of my time, but every single time I'm like, oh my God, like this is so far, so far from that, that, you know, that man that I saw with the hammer it's going like, to look for his kid. It kind of reminds me of every time one of my friends, like, um, you know, who's, who's in the, in the thir- you know, the post 30 range just tells me that they decided they've been going to be become a doctor and I go like are you crazy like, you're not gonna be a doctor for like 10 years that's forever you know no, no exactly and it I feel like ever since I started journalism I feel like I'm perpetually winded you know yeah. like I'm just running as hard as I can to stay ahead of this train that's crashing you know and like you know the capooses like the train cars are falling off the back yeah <laughs> and I'm trying to run faster than the train to be able to get to this very um, limited pool of amazing jobs um, right. because once I got overseas, I mean, I just, I mean, you know, I, I would say a prayer every night to thank my lucky stars for the amazing life that I finally was able to lead once I got to Africa. So when you when you went to New Orleans yes. after this experience of doing yeah. local stuff and AP yeah. stuff, like first time you're writing like real stories mm. in like a really like a date you know a, yeah. a troubled zone yeah. like new orleans like what do you take from like those municipal board <laughs> meetings like what do you learn from that that you use when you're like in, in uh, a field environment first of all i was very slow and i continue um and and even at the ap i was slow for like a wire reporter so um a lot of you know a lot of that was just kind of learning the muscle of filing on time yeah. Um, and, you know, learning that, like, I can't sit around and deal with writer's block, you know, for, I mean, that's just like not an, that's not an option for, for what I can do, you <laughs> right. know. And um, 
So one was just, you know, I had enormous anxiety about would I be able to do a big story on deadline? Um, And it was really only like late in my AP career when I became the bureau chief in West Africa um, and where I I was like now the main person and I just had to do it. You know, like you I mean, that's that's the most that's the Charlie Hebdo story. You know, that's where. Charlie Hebdo, I was in Senegal on vac- on the second day of my vacation with my husband um, just after after New Year's. And I get a call from my from my boss who says, did you see what happened? No. Can you be on a flight to Paris tonight? OK, I've got six hours, you know, to write the first story, yeah. um, uh, pack my bags, get to the airplane and then show up on what is the world's biggest story in a country that has a very developed press. Right. And try, try somehow to make my mark, you know, and, right. and, and I mean, it's, it's, it's enormously daunting. And, you know, you don't always, you don't always hit your stride. Are there techniques around that? I mean, are you like outlining on the plane? <laughs> like, Yeah, I mean, I'm calling every single source I have. And yeah. the very first thing that everybody tried to say was this is ISIS. And I was sort of like looking at it and going, okay, this has got some ISIS characteristics. And then I saw um, the first uh, the first report saying that it was AQAP. I had to play to my strengths, which is I cover terrorism, you know, right. and I know sort of the fingerprints of these of these various groups. I know what the lone wolf, wolf attacks generally look like when it's when it's ISIS. It's, I'm sorry to say this, but it's generally like just a crazy dude with a meat cleaver with very little planning and as a result with very little success. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, whereas AQAP tends to be more thought out, tends to be more, much more program, you know, there's a program to what to what they're going to do. Um, but to be honest, I mean, when I first got to Paris, you know, I did sort of my first story. Eh, it wasn't anything great. And then I was just like. Everywhere I went in Paris, I would show up and 50 French reporters had gotten there before me, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, to the point where you go to the address of where the Kwashi brothers were living and, you know, like like n- neighbors are just slamming the door because you're the 10th person that has, you know, that has banged on their door that day. There was this one woman who said to me, Madam, this is private property. I need you to go downstairs. I have a baby. Our door, our, you know, our doorbell has not stopped ringing and I have nothing to say, you know? And you're just like... And this is the person who lived basically on the same hallways, the Kwashi brothers, you know? So you you get to the source, but you can't even talk to them because other people have gotten there before you. I remember. So you had this big, like, double double page, double fold um, spread on the Kwashi brothers. Uh, I don't know. That was maybe... Two to three days after the attack? No, it was like ten days. Ten days. <laughs> okay. I, was give, I was very yeah, generous. I flailed. To you. I flailed. No, for no, the first but I mean, you know, well, yeah. I mean, look, yeah. how many words was that? That was probably 4, over 000, four thousand word story. So it's yeah. a lot of stuff in there, and and I, that's where what when I read open that, and I went, I went, okay, someone did this. Like yeah. a person is behind this. Yeah. Of these four thousand words, how much of that reporting is you personally, like your? IP exclusive property versus sort of a, a shared paper. body of yeah. knowledge. And, yeah. you know, to a reader, I don't read all the international newspapers. So I read the New York Times. I go, okay, it seems like the, all the facts are here. But I don't sort of look at what's overlapping and what's With unique. Other Do you feel a pressure in a situation like that to get things that people don't have? Of course, of course. I mean, on on that story, I had the enormous um, good luck that I got to work with my colleague Jim Yardley, who is, you know, this veteran New York Times reporter, a Pulitzer winner, uh, and he's now based in Rome for us. Um, and uh, and anyway, so he flew into Paris, and we were assigned to basically do the big takeout story together. We also had an amazing team of um, of uh, Aurelien and da- uh, and uh, Lore, who were these two very young 
20-something, you know, reporters in the, in the Paris Bureau who are native French speakers. Right. They were sort of like the crack team that we had. They yeah. were just, they, were, they, they had different skills and they were both amazing researchers, very good at getting stuff. Um, but we still had to get something, you yeah. know, and everywhere we turned, I mean, it felt like, well, oh, the Post has already done that or, oh, the, you know, the French newspaper has already done that, done that. And the thing that saved me is I had gone on this not very successful trip to uh, southern Turkey last December. And I'd been working with a source uh, who had done a big report about ISIS financing. Okay. And so I'd been talking to that guy, you know, and I'd, I'd just gotten to know him in November, December. We started sharing emails um, and uh, sharing ideas. And it just so happened that that man, um, he was a French prosecutor. Prosecutor is probably not the right term. He was a, a French legal official. Uh, and he was had a very tight relationship with the French terror judge of a couple of years ago. Um, France has this this strange legal system where particular crimes are um, tried in, 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 in front of a specialized court. So there's a terror judge. Every single terrorism case is heard by this particular judge. And this man who I knew was very close to the former terror judge. So he happened to be in Paris. And he said to me, what you need to do is you need to get the legal documents from um, the previous prosecutions because the Kwashi brothers have been in and out of jail, you know, for for a while, yeah. as has Koulibaly, the other, the third shooter. It's very different from the American system. You can't just go and FOIA stuff or go to the court or whatever. You actually have to know the lawyers and you have to go beg them. Even though this, this I think this document is supposed to be a public document, you have to go and have a personal conversation right. and get them to, to give you this. And so it was actually a, one of the attorneys for one of the three gunmen um, who had been involved in the last major trial where all where, where two of the three had been tapped and and uh, and faced prosecution, and this was a 2010 terror trial where uh, where Sharif Kwashi and Amadi Koulibaly were both accused of being part of a ring of of, ex- of extreme Islamists who were trying to break out this terror mastermind that is in jail uh, in Paris since 19 he, he right. was he was linked to the 1995 bombings of the of the Paris uh, subway and so <laughs> in order to catch them the police had been wiretapping them for months and following them and so if so what this guy explained to me is you get these documents, you've got their conversations, you know, with their wife. You have what they found on their personal computer. Um, you have images of them, you know, meeting each other. So when I realized that, I mean, that was that was it. You know, like, so we went to different lawyers. Um, and you were you were first there. Like, you did you say, like, have you talked to any French reporters <laughs> also about this yet? I, I have to be I have to be honest here. Um, there's a French, uh, like, investigative website that had gotten one big stash of mm. them. Um, and then I saw that Reuters and Wall Street Journal had, I think what they had was a summary. I do believe that at that point in time, we're the only ones that got all the documents, not just for 2010, but for also for this previous case, which I think was um, a, a decade earlier. And that was the first time that the that the Kwashi brothers were in trouble. And it was because they tried to go to Syria um, uh, to go to Iraq to join the jihad against uh, against the American, you know, occupation. Sorry, it was 2003. So mm-hmm. it would have been 2005 when they were when they were prosecuted. So you have through these court documents without interviewing a single person, you have the depositions of every single police officer that spoke to them. And you get to see Sharif Kwashi in 2005 when he's essentially 
nothing more than a wannabe jihadist, you know. He explains how he'd been told about, you know, the virgins in heaven and, you know, these these cockamamie ideas that that some, you know, that some of them believe in. And he he, he essentially comes off as this scared and somewhat stupid kid who was in over his head and who was almost relieved, you know, when police arrested him on his way to on his way to Iraq. Then in 2010, you see he doesn't go to jail in 2010. He gets let off. But you suddenly see this much more hardened um, Islamist. There's this amazing passage where they bring him in for questioning, and he refu- He now knows how the system works, and he refuses to answer any questions. And the police officer is writing, you know, things down and goes, um, "Let the record state uh, that Mr. Sharif Kwashi did not answer the question. Let the record state that he answered by shaking his head no. Let the record reveal that Mr. Kwashi blinked." Literally blinked his eyes. You know, I mean, it was like, and he's just the stony-faced, right. refusing to cooperate, you know, guy. And so, so I think the the reason that this person helped us is he was involved in that prosecution, and he feels that he saw the face of these real terrorists back then, and that essentially the world missed it, you know, because they let him off free, you know. And Koulibaly was also did some time in jail, but it's unclear what sort of, you know what sort of wiretapping, you know, happened happened afterwards. The working theory is that France has been deluged with these foreign fighters who who these French citizens who went to Syria and who have now come back. And they've become the priority and they're overwhelming French resources who are trying to, you know, to follow these people. I, I was told by one guy that I think it takes I think it's twenty five people to follow one potential suspect. 25 police officers to be able to do every single shift, nighttime, weekends, whatever. And they don't have the resources to do it for these thousands of potential suspects, right? And so what happened is the old guard fell through. So anyway, so I mean, it's it's these years at the Streamwood, Illinois, you know, Christmas right. tree lighting ceremony and, you know, screwing up on the salt, you know, on the salt story and everything else that, that at least gave me the muscle, the writing muscle to be able to do this stuff quickly enough, you know, yeah. for, for a news cycle. Um, but then there's always like an enormous element of luck on these huge stories. Because I, I really, I, like five days into my trip in Paris, I was like, oh my God, like, I don't think I'm going to get anything. You know? right. <laughs> I mean, an, anything memorable, you know. Final question. I will not, I've, you've been uh, an amazing sport. Thank uh, you. Holding out this Thank long. Um, so you've had a pretty tumultuous first year um, working at the Times. I mean, you've done, there was the Foley captivity story, not just Foley, all of the captives story. There was the um, Kawachi brothers story. You've had like a lot of really big stories and you've been part of these really big world events. We've touched on a number of times in this interview with um, interactions you've had with uh, the families of people who who were ISIS captives. In all of the sort of stuff that trails behind you from doing this job yeah. and, and the human con, uh, contacts, are you able to find any sort of light alongside the darkness? I mean, does this stuff, when you think back on all these events that you've really been a part of, mm-hmm. is it just horror or is there like, uh, is there a sort of a counterbalance to that for you? You know, I mean, the ISIS stuff has been particularly grim. I mean, just, you know, it's hard to see much light. Yeah. You know, in that are you just at this desk for until ISIS <laughs> disbands, or like what's what's that's the a, tenure that's a, on that? Uh, I think that's a st- that's a question for somebody that you know that has a that has a higher function at the New York Times than me. Um, I think the hostage story seems to be mostly over. I mean, yeah. the just yesterday 
we got the awful news that the last American hostage has been killed. However, this kidnapping strategy of theirs, you know, will probably stay. Right. Um, so I'm actually, I'm actually, you know, throwing up my net and trying to figure out what's what's the next thing. Where should I? Where should I look? Should I look at ISIS financing? Should I look at um, their strategy for governing? You know, what what's the next thing? Uh, and I, I haven't answered that yet. I mean, if you have any suggestions, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't have any suggestions, but I look forward to reading it, uh, whatever it is. Thank you very much for coming in. I'm not going to say your name at the end because it would it would cap like a very great conversation with a terrible mistake. <laughs> I'm Rukmini Kalimaki. Kalimaki. I'm a reporter at the New York Times. New, Thank you so much. The New York Aaron. Times. All the stuff's um, on New York Times and the AP. Um, we'll link to it all in the show notes. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Times are hard, you're afraid to pay the fee So you find yourself somebody who can do the job for free And that was the complete second part of my interview with Rikmini Kalimaki. Uh, Thanks very much to her for tolerating me for the over three hours of conversations that made up this two-part episode. Uh, Thanks to our editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman, who has put in super, super, super overtime getting this ready. Uh, Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky, our intern, Rachel Mabe, our sponsors, Tiny Letter and Lynda.com. Did you know if you went to Lynda.com slash longform, you'd get a 10-day free trial and support this show? Um, Anyway, yeah. Thanks for listening. Light the candle, put the lock upon the door. You have sent the maid home early like a thousand times before. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.